Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, welcome to Changes with Annie Mack. This is a place where we explore change and all the different ways it can affect people. Hope you're doing okay. Change is at the forefront of all of our minds at the moment with regards to when the hell we are going to get out of this lockdown. It seems to be slowly starting to shift in terms of people's behavior and um, everything feels like it's getting a bit looser, a bit less uptight. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or not, we will see. There's so many unanswered questions. Uh, When are we going back to school? When are we going back to work? What is the new normal? Oh my God, I hate those words. Uh, But yeah, suffice to say that I hope you're coping okay and I hope that you're getting some time for yourself I presume you are if you are able to listen to this podcast so important to go out and get a walk and get fresh air and just have some headspace and some time for you um, the guest on this week's podcast is a woman called Candice Brathwaite. She is a mummy blogger, an influencer, a campaigner and a founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, an online initiative that aims to encourage a more accurately representative and diverse depiction of motherhood in the media. Candice Brathwaite is a black woman from Brixton. She brings a vital and necessary perspective to British motherhood today. Um, she has a background in marketing previously worked at Penguin Books. She soon grasped the power and potential that Instagram had to offer. She is savvy and was like, okay, we can make some money out of this, especially as someone whose perspective isn't shown at all in motherhood in the media. So she shared her family life on her platform, her her partner, Papa B, Bode, uh, her daughter, Esme Olivia, and her baby son, RJ, uh, keen to show that young black families weren't just surviving, but they were totally thriving. And she has a debut book called I Am Not Your Baby Mother, which is out this week and is really, um, she's going to be huge. She's kind of one of the rising stars for a lot of different publications, be it Grazia or Observer. She's very smart, very savvy, and a real, real stark reminder of the huge misrepresentation in the media when it comes to motherhood and how it really needs to open its doors to everyone who lives in this country. Uh, So yeah, she's smart, she's vital, she's brilliant. You are going to learn a lot in this episode and most importantly with regards to change. She is affecting so much change in the landscape of motherhood in Britain and advertising and publishing and mummy blogging. So yeah, bring on the change and enter the podcast Candice Brathwaite. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, the podcast is all about change and you have kindly kind of answered a couple of questions in advance. And I, I just feel like there's so much to talk to you about with regards to change in terms of, you, you know, you have gone through some serious changes and kind of turns and twists in your life, but also mm. you are going to be really instrumental in affecting change, I think, for a lot of people when this book comes out. I loved 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 the book um oh don't make me cry yeah no no it's so weird to hear people say that because I think 
I, I've ne- I never did this before. And I think you go through, oh, I got a book deal. Great, great, great. And then yeah. you write it and that's hard. And then, you know, you look at it now and I, I just see what I feel like are the rubbish bits. I got you. Okay. But then everyone else reading it is like, no, no, this is actually going to do something. So mm. just prepare for that. And mm. it's so sick to hear. Yeah. Really sick to hear. I mean, it's one of those books that it made me feel kind of in equal parts enlightened and enraged for what you have been mm. through as a black woman. And then also mm. also as a white woman who has benefited from privilege all her life, just, just shame at not thinking about all these things, you know, mm. when, when they happen. So having gone through childbirth twice and never thinking about what it must be like for a black or brown woman in this position or, or you know, all the things that I have just kind of, you know, skip through life at never really having thought enough about what it must be like for people who aren't white so it's kind of like you know as a white person reading it as a white mother reading it it's 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 kind of shocking and it does bring out feelings of like fuck fuck how have I never noticed this before so for that and this is coming from someone who thought that she was you know like pretty up on this shit and, and and has you know has really cares about it for that, I think it's going to be really, really interesting for a lot of people to read. And I, I mean, I guess we should start there with your your impulses. What what made you really want to and need to write this book? So it found its way to me. This is the book I tried to avoid writing. I went out with like five proposals before I wrote this one. And for some reason, those ones just weren't landing and I was getting the very common. And this this bit stings a bit. And my heart goes out to anyone who can actually string a sentence together. But it's now become, oh, your platform's not big enough. You're a great writer, but you don't have enough social media followers. And I'm like, what are you saying? Like, where are we in life that in one breath you will say, like, I really enjoy how you write and I think people will read it. But, you know, your social media is not up to par. And I was getting a lot of that. And I was just like, oh, I cannot be bothered. And then it came down to the wire. I was going to sign a deal shortly, just before Christmas 2018, and it fell through like Boxing Day, and I was crushed. And my manager was like, listen, everyone is asking you to write a book about motherhood. And the industry, I work in this mummy blogger world or whatever people want to call it. Even though I'm in it, I'm the first one to say it's a very fickle space. Mm. And many of the books coming out of that space aren't books that I would particularly pick up in five years time, if I'm honest. Mm. And I was like, I don't know why people want me to write this shit, because I, I, I wouldn't like read that that's not something that's going to stay in my mind and in one hour I wrote the most scathing vexed proposal for this book I was like you want fucking motherhood here you go take your shit leave me alone and like we had a deal in two weeks um we signed with Quercus they were like this is what we've been waiting for. The only thing for me that had to stick is I was not going to sign the deal if they wanted to change the title the title yeah. was a deal breaker. I yeah. was like, this is the title or you don't have the book. Mm. And I love Quirkus because they got me from the jump and they were very honest. They were like, this is the first black British book about motherhood ever. Yeah, e- that's ever mad. In history. That's mad. Coming out in 2020. That is mad. Um, that is insane. And they were like, we'll be honest. No one's done this before. We're not black women. So we trust you implicitly. 
And that's all I needed to hear because I was like, I'm also not going to dilute or dither or erase things because um, it makes my editor or a publicist uncomfortable. Mm. Whatever I put down, you have to accept that this is fact, unfortunately. And now we're here. And you know what? I don't begrudge all of the dismissals and the cold calling with all the other proposals because now I read this, this is what it was supposed to be. Right, so. right, right. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you are so honest in the book in terms of what you give of yourself and your experiences. So you talk about abortion, you talk about rape, you talk about depression, mm-hmm. both your own and your mummy's. You talk about mm-hmm. grief, you talk about medical neglect, like leading to your septic shock and near nearly dying. You talk about racism, mm-hmm. obviously. You talk about all the daily microaggressions that you have to go through as, as a black woman, as a black mother. There's so much to kind of unpick. And and what I loved about it is that your voice in it is so clearly, as you say, not in any way watered down. <laughs> it feels like you're just like when you're reading the book that you're, um, you're, you know, you're chatting to you in the pub or on the phone. Like it's just, yeah. it's just very, very conversational. And because of that, it, I don't know, it, it makes it so much more powerful reading about what you've been through. Okay, so let's start with where you grew up. Tell me about your amazing relationship with your grandfather. Yeah, I grew up in, in Brixton, SW9, SW2 all day. That will forever be home. And um, my granddad was mugged really violently and he got left blind in one eye and was deemed unfit for work. So my nan went out and paid the mortgage and my granddad became like a stay-at-home dad slash cleaner slash cook. And then my mum had me and was living uh, with her mum and dad, my grandparents at the time, and she wanted to go back to work. And my granddad was like, I'll look after Candice, you go to work. And I lived with my nan and granddad and my mum till I was eight years old. But mm. And I love my mum, but I never really saw her. She just went straight back to full-time work. Um, my my nan and granddad were like the cement. They still are in a lot of ways, the cement of my life. Mm-hmm. Any family holiday that was booked, it was a given that I was going. And they would take me and not my mum. <laughs> They'd be like, no, you're staying. <laughs> but Candice goes everywhere we go. Um, and it was just, I look back now and I see like, you know, this new wave of dads lobbying for parental leave and all that jazz and this was a black guy in the late 80s and early 90s being the stay-at-home mum and it's mind-blowing because he used to get ribbed by his mates like oh Georgie doesn't know how to do anything but iron but he took great pride in that job Mm. he took great pride in like coming to all my little recitals and all of those things and um it was a but with that said as much as I felt the love Uh, The love between them was not there. It was a very tense period in the house because about when I was about eight and a half, they decided to divorce, which was for everyone's happiness. Mm. And like I said in the book, I genuinely feel like I was that last thread tying them together. Right. And once my mum got married and then we moved out, I think the fact that I wasn't in that house just cemented the fact they hated each other. It Mm. was like, oh. The, the thing we love together has gone and now I have to look at you, this is annoying. Um, and yeah, they broke up. And, and you know, in a lot of ways now, that still kind of kills me mm. because that is, it's my home. My nan stayed living in the house. My granddad um, moved out. And writing this book has really made me unpack a lot of stuff. Mm. And I think it also gave me a moment to shout out a space that 
due to due to very normal things like gentrification and house prices being astronomical right. the people that made that space what it was i don't think they get their thanks yeah. i don't think yeah. they get their praise yeah. and i wanted it on record in black and white that a place like brixton was it now exists because of people like my nan and granddad and sure i want people to remember that yeah. So, so your grandparents divorced around eight years old, and then what? Yeah. What did that mean for you? Like, how did that change impact you? Like, physically, where you know, where did you spend your days? What happened? Uh, it impacted me really badly because it just felt like I was being turfed out of my family home. My mum got married to this dude that I didn't quite like at the time, and I still don't quite like now. They're divorced. And I went to live with them and my mum fell pregnant with my sister and I automatically felt like a spare part. Right. I'd gone from being the only child doted on, not just by my mum and dad, but her grandparents, to now just being this stepchild of sorts. And it really messed with my head. And so then the only safe space in my mind was time with my dad. And my dad was always present, always on the scene, but... Going to see him on the weekend, it was like, oh, God, thank God I'm the apple of someone's eye because I just felt so displaced. Mm. I was like, even if I go to see my nan, she's just going to be crying about stuff my granddad did to her. Um, My granddad now lived in East Ham and I couldn't get to that part of London by myself. And so I just felt like a rolling stone. And my sister came along and I, I love her now, but that was really hard uh, on any kid. You're eight, you've been the only child for so long. And then this kid comes along with this guy who, I, I wouldn't say he didn't like me, but he made it very clear that I wasn't his child. Right. And my sister was his child. And living with that energy was just so mad. And yeah, yeah that was that was the first, my first introduction to change you can't control. I couldn't control that. I couldn't make my nan and granddad stay together. And so you just had to learn to roll with the punches, of which there were many more to come. Yeah. (laughs) There's a really, really powerful part in the book where you talk about being, being a parent and you have two kids now and you talk about Esme your oldest and the kind of uh, anticipation from you of when she is going to be forced to realize that she's black um, and mm. and different from the majority of white kids in her class in school do you remember when and where you were when that realization happened for you gosh where was i and was it one time I think I th- it, when I really deep it now, my first interaction with that, and I think it's in the book, is when a black guy on the bus was like, oh, yeah. oh, you're really ugly. Like, you're black and ugly. And I was like six. And this was a black guy telling me this. Oh, my God. Why and is no one that- stepping in there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's so crazy because I I didn't really share this story with my mum until a couple of years ago and she was sat at the back of the bus. The bus was really packed. We were on the number two coming down from Crystal Palace to get to the back of Tulse Hill to go to Nan and Grandad's house. And so I was at the front of the bus and she couldn't hear what was going on and it was a black guy, clearly not in his right mind, Mm. but he was really going for me. And everyone around me was an adult and they just didn't say anything. God. And... I think that was my moment. I think that was 
the f- the moment I like went home and looked in the mirror and was like, am I ugly? Right. Um, but I I I think it's only now as a grown up I'm like, no, that's when you realised you were black and you perhaps subconsciously tied ugliness to blackness, mm. especially because it was a guy that looked like you saying it. Mm. That is harsh, man. That is that is I, I, when you're reading the book, you're kind of like screaming out. You're, it's like, one of those who's moments. Jump in? Yeah, like what the fuck? Can someone please help this girl? <laughs> yeah, and well, it's, and yeah. I think that moment in the book is actually a slight introduction to how black women don't really get helped. Yeah, black girls don't get helped. And yeah. um, well, let's talk about that then for a second. The, the black black women and black mothers. You talk about mm. seeing so many black mothers struggling with mental health and depression. Why do you think that uh, there's been so much silence around this? Oh, I know my community, the black community, we're really secretive. And I, 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 it's a double-edged sword. I understand that we're perhaps secretive because I think we feel like being open has cost us so much already. So it's like, well, lock down the fort, you know, protect yourself. But that also means that within our own homes and our own spaces, there are just some things you do not say. And even if you do say it, like... To, to use a, an up-to-date reference, there's a, a TikTok going around at the moment. I love TikTok. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this boy's telling his dad he's depressed, this black boy. And the dad's like, you're depressed? You better go in the kitchen and depress those dishes. And he just <laughs> So there's just no time for it. <laughs> like... Yeah, not even entertaining he, it. Yeah. I laugh. Yeah. I'm like, Jesus, this is... It's so savage and it's so triggering because we've all heard that or a family member gets diagnosed by the NHS with depression and everyone's like oh should we leave more money at the church altar have you read this bible passage it's just very like yeah we do not accept this this is not something that happens to us and so that's how I think so many black women especially in the postnatal period slip through the cracks Mm. and because of things like lack of funding it then becomes, uh, oh, let's not even bother to give you therapy. Let's just heavily medicate you. There was one amazing black woman who used to walk around Brixton. She used to go by the name of Yaya. She used to have dreadlocks piled high on her head. And I think to the outside world, she did look mentally unstable. But the Yaya I knew had six kids and had fallen mentally ill after having them and was now just doped up all right. the time. Yeah. She unfortunately died a homeless, lonely woman last year. And just thinking about Mm. her, I'm like, that's a life that could have been saved. Mm. But even if someone does listen, I think when it comes to mental health, regardless of race, we're a society that really leans heavily into, oh, let's get a tablet to sort that out. Mm. Instead of, do you need someone to talk to? Maybe more money should be spent on counselling. So I'm very aware of how when it comes to being a black woman, you're really not getting listened to. And they are just literally fobbing you off with medication because I saw it. It's in the book. I saw it happen to my own mum, you know? Yeah, I was was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, To go into somewhere like the Maudsley, for those who don't know, the Maudsley is like a very infamous mental hospital in South London. And to go in there and to visit your mum and to see that she doesn't know who you are is so next level. But also looking back, I'm shocked at how 
unfazed I was because I'd seen so many other mums look like that. Wow. I'd seen Yaya look like that. It it was not a it was not a new sight. It just felt really harsh to be on the receiving end of that look. Like, mm. yeah, I'm here and I just don't know who you are. Sorry. So harrowing. How did you come to understand that your mum was struggling? Because you you took a lot of um the flack in terms of parenting your younger kids, right? Your younger mm. siblings, sorry. Yeah. I think the first time I heard the word depression and understood it, she tried to commit suicide with me in the house. Oh she tried God. to take an overdose and then I had to call the ambulance and raise the flag. What uh, age were you? Coming up to eight, because this was like just before she got married. Right. So and you knew what to do. So you must have been so, um, I mean, that's yeah. just so impressive for a girl that young to be like, okay, calling the ambulance. Yeah, I don't even, I just think I understood that she wasn't answering me. Okay. And that I knew it's the middle of the day, my mum doesn't sleep. And like, I kept lifting up her eyelid and they just kept flapping down. Mm. And so even though I was panicked, I know that when that's happening, you just call 999. I, I, yeah. I, I know I didn't know what was happening, but I knew that it was a scary moment. And so I knew very early on she suffered with depression I didn't understand what it was till maybe my mid-teens. And especially more so because every other friend's mum had depression too. Mm. And so the, the the rare time I could get out to go to a mate's house, you'd rock up to your mate's house at like two in the afternoon on a Saturday and all the blinds would be closed. And your mate would be like, yeah, mum's just having a downer. And you got it. You got it. It was like, yeah, cool. You don't, let's just go to your room. You do not need to explain because I understand this situation. And then even my, my nan's neighbors had two sons, two who committed suicide. The first son hung himself from a tree at the bottom of the garden. Oh my God. Mum comes down in the morning to like make a cup of tea and just sees her son hanging there. Oh my God. And then his brother, I think off the back of that, goes mad and a couple of years later jumps out the window of a block of flats in front of his three-year-old kid. And now when I see them, because his parents are still alive, they're clearly out of it. And I sometimes I just want to scream and be like, where's the intervention for these people? Where is the person that goes, all right, enough trauma now. Let's see mm-hmm. how we can kind of keep a family together. But it just don't seem to happen. And I feel... I feel mad lucky to live a life not marred by mental health currently. Mm. I just feel like my dad always used to say, oh, you've got some special gold dust on you. And I really feel that Mm. because I just see mental health more than anything swallowing my community whole. I mean, you talk in the book about the the guardedness of the black community, you know, Mm. and you, you do seem the polar opposite of that in terms of you're, you're able to just be so open like a book literally like yeah. a book and it you know it's amazing to see and as I said it's so useful for people who are not in that community to really understand what the black community have to endure how do you think that you skipped that that trait how did you what is it you know, the magic does but like is there any other reason do yeah. you think yeah and this will be like the second my I think my second pivotal moment so and it's really weird to speak about it now considering what the world is going through but my dad died of the flu really suddenly like 
And I was an au pair in Italy at the time. So I spoke to him on the Wednesday and he was dead by the Friday. And I just couldn't get my head around it because I was like, yeah, he sounded a bit sniffly. But post-mortem showed that he'd had really bad flu for like two weeks and it turned into pneumonia and he died. And he 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 died in the waiting room of A&E, like just went into cardiac oh, arrest. Yeah. So like I said, I'm his only kid and I'm coming home from what I thought was going to be this really sensational gap year to bury my dad. And I remember finally seeing him in the chapel of rest and my granddad, the one who raised me, took me to see him. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at my dad's body and be, I was just like, oh God, you know, of course this is terrible. But it was also the moment I, I just heard all these wheels click in my head where I was like, oh shit, is this how it ends for everyone? All right. If I'm going to end up defrosting in a wooden box, no one can chat shit to me. I don't want to hear it. I am literally going to live my life how I see fit. Mm. Because if this really is the given end, like you've got no choice over death. I do not want to be dying and be looking back on my life like I've lived every moment for someone else or not said how I feel. And I was, I just was turning 21 at the time and all bets were off and I still hold that moment very, very dear because as hard as that grief has been to carry, it was a massive wake up call because mm. I was like, oh, I've met the Grim Reaper quite early on. And I'm I'm actually quite happy because it's just shown me that life is really short. And from that day, I became quite the black sheep of the family because all of a sudden I'm the one going to family reunions, like cussing out old aunties who just can't keep their mouth shut or who are being mad homophobic. And everyone's like, Candice, we're just going to stop inviting you to things because you always cause a problem. I'm like, no, it's not a problem. It's actually revealing the truth. But I'm fine to not come to your shit reunion if all you want to do is be fake and, and like put these lies and this propaganda on steroids. I don't have the time for it. And so something like this book and the way I live my life, I think people are like, oh, we really rate you. You're really confident. It's come at a really high cost. Yeah. Because I've in a lot of ways, I'm quite a pariah to the people I love or I'm a pariah to my community on the whole because I come across as that black girl who just won't shut up. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, but there's just no going back, you know? It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of, you know, as the most tragic, awful death of your father, that mm. maybe it's, there's, you know, I, I'm one of those relentless optimists where I always try and find the bright side of things, but just the idea of that epiphany happening to you off the back of seeing your dad there's got to be something going on there right there's got to be some higher meaning to to you becoming the the kind of whole person that you are off the back of his demise always always and I think I think I put it in the book like my dad wanted to be a writer he wanted to write a book yeah but he's a black boy growing up in the 70s it is not going to happen he wanted to be a sports writer specifically and I was about eight the summer he told me and we were eating strawberry cornettos. And he was like, but, you know, it's going to be different for you, he said. And I'm, I'm now looking around like, oh, my gosh, I wish he was here because it's so different. He knew it. It's so different. Mm. And I'm doing everything 
that he couldn't see a way to do. Mm. And I just think it would be an absolute waste of the time I've got left on this earth to just be like, oh, I'm not even going to try that because I've not seen a black woman do that before or because Mm. of racism and microaggressions. This is not to say that these things don't exist, Mm. but they they don't slow my roll. I'm just like, mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, they okay. spur you on. You're like, right. Yeah, I'm that like, in the book. okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we still have to push on because mm. especially, you, you know, you're a mum now. E- everyone just wants to leave a better space for their kids. Mm. And I don't ever want my daughter specifically or my son to come to me and feel like, they can't achieve something because of the constraints of society. Because mm. I'm just going to be like, no. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Every chapter starts off with a stat. And there's stats that are there. They just fucking knock you for six. Um, the one about, you know, talking about your dad wanting to be a writer, the one about 21,975 black graduates on undergrad courses compared to 262,415 <laughs> white students. And that's just a couple of years ago, like just the huge discrepancies when it comes to academia and like all of the kind of opportunities out there. Then there's the stat about black women being five times more likely to die in childbirth. There's you talking about the knife crime stuff, which I'm so fascinated in. And Mm. like, how did the research of this impact you while you were writing the book? Like, as a reader, I was so angry. How were you not just pacing your streets, shouting at the world when you were doing it? (laughs) Mate, let me tell you, my bill for my therapist went through the roof. I was like, sis, clear all your other clients because I need help right now. <laughs> oh my God. And there were like periods of like three weeks where I just wouldn't sit down to write because I okay. was so infuriated. I was like, this chapter will just say fuck off. So let's <laughs> let's go and have a few snacks and watch some TV because I can't process this right now. Yeah. Even though I'm the black person and I knew these things exist to see it in black and white like Mm. in the knife crime chapter to see how much was spent purchasing Brixton Village 
but not invested mm. in the Horrific. school system. Horrific. I was like, oh my word. But, um, you know, I only came across this saying a couple of months ago about falling on your own sword. I thought, girl, you're here now. And I tell everyone, I don't know if I'm going to write another book because this one really put me through the ringer. I think, again, because of the space I work in and, and you know, that mummy blogger space, I thought, well, I see women get a book deal um, drink a couple of G&Ts, say it's really hard, but then it's all rosy at the end. Mm. And I think I, I got tricked because I thought, oh, it's going to be like that for me. No, it's not. No, it's not. The material you're producing doesn't allow for any of this to be kushti. Mm. It's gonna Yeah, you're gonna have to explain yeah. yourself again and again and again yes. and try you know and be that voice for your community again and again and again. Right. Because it's such a whitewashed world that you're in in terms of that mummy blogger world, right? Like mm. I'm so fascinated in that world. It feels <laughs> someone needs to make a fucking film about that world. <laughs> oh like, my god. Like And I also couldn't get this opportunity and screw it because for every white mummy blogger who has had a book deal or who has all of these great endorsement deals, there are hundreds of black women trying to get on that playing field. Mm. There are hundreds of thousands of black women trying to get a book deal. So mm. even though it made me angry, I was like, girl, pull yourself together. Mm. Because doing this right could potentially mean 10 other black women this year get a book deal. Yeah. Get, get a grip. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. The floodgates will open now. Yeah, I yeah. hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about that little world at the moment. That that, that as the, the the white mummy blogger world, right? I mean, oh, it's God. it's a brave world to enter. Um, mm. I think because. I don't know, I, like it, as a mom, it's something that I've kind of tried to, uh, it's something that scares me because it, as you really well explain in the book, it, it's all one type of person. They look the same and they act the same and it's all kind of, I don't know, I, I found it I found it quite intimidating. I've never mm -hmm. gone to mum's net. I've just been like, it's a club that I don't belong in, basically. Mm -hmm. How ferocious is it in terms of being on the inside? Oh, it's, it's... Uh... Look, I'm lost for words. It's, I've said this before. I I think the mummy blogging space can be really detrimental to your mental health if you're not ready for it because it's a, it's a fierce industry. And this is what people don't understand. It's an industry. And just like how Pepsi compete with Coke, you're going to be sitting alongside women who may see you as a threat. And that pulls up things inside of them that make them act crazy. And from the outside looking in, I saw entering this space, I was very naive. I just want to get in there and show them that there are different types of mums, you know? Mm. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to give this a bash. Oh, my Christ, if I had a crystal ball, I would have just minded my damn business. Because okay. especially the back end of last year with the whole trolling situation. Mate. Like <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just, just so fascinated by that whole thing. I found myself to be the headliner of a movie I didn't even want to be in. No. I was like, "What is this shit?" So, so let's explain it for those who don't know. Let's explain this because it's really fascinating. So, you were just minding your own business, getting on with your job and getting on with your life, and then a really prominent blogger was found to be trolling under a different name on various. Yeah various what do you call them um like chat forums that's it that's it that's forum. it yeah 
And then she was talking about you. And what were the things that she said about you? She said that um, I'm aggressive and Mm. that I weaponize race. I use race as a weapon. The reason why language or discussing me in a manner like that is just so mad is because I don't know if she still does it now, but at the time she was a registered midwife on the NHS and she had brought me on her very popular podcast to try and petition people to get with the idea that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth. And when I did some research on the timeline of her chat activities, like she was saying these things before bringing me on there. And I was just, I just read these things and Apart from feeling really sad, I also felt like a top dickhead. I felt, I was just like, girl, because I'm not going to sit here and lie. There were many moments of interactions with her where my instinct was just screaming. Mm. My instinct was like, nah, this is, this girl is not a vibe, G. Fall back, fall back. Mm. But I'm like, no, we work in the same space. You know how it is. If you worked in an office, it's not everyone in the kitchen you're going to like, but you're like, I have also been on that podcast. As a guest. <laughs> and it was a time, and it still is a time, considering, rest in peace, what, what happened to Caroline Flack. Right. Like, trolling can really push people into a dark place. Mm. I know these trolling websites exist, but here's what I don't do. I don't Google myself. I know some people have, like, um, alerts set up when people Google them. I'm like, why do you do yeah. that? But also, what? isn't it, like, isn't it the fact that she was kind of driven to that, that she, that her mind why? felt like that that was the thing to do? Isn't there something in the whole putting your entire life online that is inherently destructive? Like, this is another thing, like, just, you know, when you choose to live that life of giving everything, can you do that and and be all right? Like, it's... it's, Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. And that episode and that time of my life really showed me that. Okay. I'd, I'd slowly been putting the gates up. Once the book had been finished, the gates were going up. But the minute that happened, I locked the fort. I was right. like, nah, fuck this. Yeah. You, if, you know, I'm going to come on here three times a week and show you lots of fucking Gucci shoes. You don't get the best or the worst of me. Mm. You don't get intimate details about my kids. Yeah. Because what that also showed me is that in that moment of gossip and people will just come and pick at you like you're a dead piece of meat and just walk off with whatever with no regard for your mental health. Mm. And I've said this a million times. I do not wish her ill at all. I'm like, actually, I'm praying for your mental health because where you had to be to pull this off for a year or whatever you were doing, Mm. not cool. Mm. Also, I'm also the mum of kids and her kids, her eldest, are old enough to go to school and be bullied for this moment, a moment they didn't ask for. Mm. And I think as the person who was most horrifically spoken about, I also in a very higher level sense, because admittedly my human mind didn't want to do this for a long time, but I also understand I have the power to say, yeah, she moved mad. And yeah, what she wrote about me was racist, but let's just leave her to her own devices. Mm. I understand I have that power. Mm. I could be out here and say, you know what? Take her guts for garters, but I'm, It's just not my vibe. Mm. Where where can we go from that? Mm. What have we all learned? If you spend too much time on the internet, it will surely send you mad. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and because at the end of last year, you did uh, a kind of revelation about your history as a sex worker. 
And that was also, if I'm right, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, someone trying to out you, which I get that felt to me like the most shocking bit that someone's going around trying to fucking out you like you're a member of the royal family or something, you know, like it's like everyone needs to know your pa- It's like, yeah. And that, that for me is still a really surreal moment because I was forced to confront something that I've not even tabled with my therapist yet. Right. And I was like, I'm literally being stripped naked for, for what, for likes, for engagement. I don't understand this. I don't understand why that's relevant. I also couldn't get my head around it's 2019 and we're using sex work to try and shame someone (laughs) where are we (laughs) please but it was it seemed to be one person and they were very active during that period I don't know who it is and they were incessantly emailing every single brand my publishers my management and I was just like oh my god yes and no one could tell you who it was no, I would it, be like uh, Miss Marple out here. I'd be like, listen, right. And for a while, I was very, um, I was very like it almost run ragged trying to get to the bottom of who it was. But I also thought that didn't change anything. Yeah, sure. I was like, okay, so I have to lead by example. It was for me another defining moment because I'd been chatting for years telling people oh yeah your truth will free you and you know don't worry what people think about you life goes on and in that moment I had to take my own medicine and it didn't taste too good Mm. I was like oh I now have to lead by example and what was really overwhelming once that went out on my social media Annie, like I cried tears of joy, mate. I saw. I saw. I saw. saw, Well, it's free. Yeah, but also the reactions, right? I know. We're wholly just, just so supportive. So, Mm. so just overwhelming love, like from the most, like just random American celebrities who should have no idea who I am. (laughs) Who? 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 I want to know. Like. Amanda Sales, like oh, she's God. on. I was just like, "What the hell? How do you even follow me? How did you get here?" <laughs> uh, they, they're DMing me like, "Girl, this ain't a thing. Please don't let this stop your shine." And wow. I was like, "Oh, so here's me for many years knowing that that part of my life existed and not really want to reckon with it because I'm like, could it potentially damage the brand I've built now? Mm. And for that noose to be put on my neck by someone else, but then cut off by me." It was such a moment and everyone's like, oh, book two. I'm like, no, nah, let, let me just sit tight with this. <laughs> At least Firstly. 24 therapy sessions before we can even speak of it. <laughs> like, and then maybe, but yeah. And I, I'm, I'm proud of that moment. And it was awesome to have so many people message me, email me to say, they are sex workers now to get yeah. through uni, yeah. to like feed their kids mm. and to see me own that moment and still build this brand has just inspired them. Mm. I'm like, yeah, that's where we need to be. One of the things I find interesting in the book is that you, you've mentioned it already, how other black women respond to you and the fact that you are kind of in this very white space at the moment, obviously not with Make Motherhood Diverse, but in yeah. in, in, in the kind of the, the blogger world. Oh, God. Initially, 
it was it black women didn't respond well to me trying to access that space their attitude was very yeah but you know they don't want us there so you just need to do fubu for us by us and keep it pushing and i you know being my dad's kid was like and i use this analogy in the book nah they are at this table with all of this like mm-hmm. quinoa and avocado and shit and we sit at this table with I love KFC, but it's not everyday KFC, diabetes, cholesterol. Mm. Maybe I want to go to the whole greens table and eat what they're eating. And I don't see why that should be a problem. But I also understand from many black women's perspective, especially since the trolling, especially since me coming out as a sex worker, I think a lot of it in the early days was out of fear and out of protection. Mm. And I appreciate that any hate black women did give me perhaps came from a place of protection, but I'm also now really understanding that there are so many of them who for so long were silently loving me and silently spurring me on. And the back end of last year showed that because if not for the black community, we we wouldn't even be recording this podcast now. Mm. Who do you want to be reading this book the most? Who do you want to be impacted by it the most? Two sets of people. The first one is like 16-year-old girls. Right, okay. In South London, black or white. Yeah. Because I I read the book back while I was on holiday a couple of weeks ago and I was like, right, I wish I read this when I was 16. I wish I knew that I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a woman in a space where there are, some men see me as prey, you know? Some men will try to do a number on me and I could potentially be left holding some babies and just be regarded as a baby mother. So I'm trying to catch those young women early. I'm trying Mm. to get them at 15, 16. Read this, be smart, speak up, tell the truth, you know. And even if you find yourself in a position where someone dares refers to you as a baby mother, there's an out. There is always an out. There is always a way to better your life. It, like becoming a baby mother in someone's eyes is not the end of your life. So them, number one. And number two, it is for the it is for the white women, like you were saying, Annie, who thought they knew mm. or are like in their heads, they're like, no, I'm woke. I'm good. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's, for, it's for those women yeah. specifically because these, as we've seen with books like Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Yeah, which I read and was totally yeah. enlightened by. Totally, yeah. It's, Everyone should read that book. It should be on exactly. the fucking syllabus. Exactly. If we're really trying to move society along, if we're really trying to open up spaces at these tables, mm. it's not this book at the heart really isn't something my community is going to be shocked by or can even move forward and use it to make change. It's those with the privilege that can do that. It's the midwives. It's those Mm. in the offices. It's the women we interact with. It's other white mummy bloggers. The, the, I mean, you've spoken publicly about your hospital situation, you know, after Mm. you had your baby. Um, And it's so... uh, just heartbreaking to read and scary, just really frightening um, Mm -hmm. to read. Can you just run us through your kind of your personal experience of racism in, in the healthcare system that you have suffered? Yeah. So when I had my first kid, I ended up um, getting sepsis, which is like a blood infection. 
And for days, man, I kept them. I had three midwives, all of various races, I have to admit, were coming to my house. And I was like, yo, I really don't feel good. And they were like, it's all in your head, you know, stay off mum's net, you know, it will get better. And then luckily, Esme fell asleep on me one night, she wriggled down and she was able to expel the black and green pus that was festering under my C-section wound. And that's how we knew I had sepsis. But leading up until that point, uh, I was induced and I just found there to be a disregard for any kind of my pain or my suffering I watched as a white midwife, I was like crying in pain, cramping. And she was like, yeah, I'll deal with you later. And then there was a white woman who was in just as much pain, if not more. And she was just so mothering and loving to her. Right, right. And I was like, even in my pain, it's so mad. I made a mental note. I was like, don't forget this shit. It may come in handy later. Just mm, file mm. this away for years later when you're feeling good enough to make something of this moment Mm. and then you know even in the book when I say I went to the doctors and to say I was pregnant and it's questions about like yeah so where's the dad like eh I I feel like especially the conversations I've had with white women these are not the questions asked to of them you know but it's a young-ish black girl coming in pregnant and it's just this very roll of eyes like oh another one Mm. and I find that attitude to penetrate every single angle of the NHS I mean Mm. even now with this pandemic just a few weeks ago especially BAME NHS workers were disregarded as low skilled and Mm. unnecessary and now the, the the first four doctors to die from I COVID saw, right I now saw the are pictures. all black and Asian. Yeah, that yeah. was so powerful seeing that. It was like fucking hell. Surely this tells the most important story. Like th- yeah. just th- those four photos in a row. It was just wow. Like we, we, we black people in the NHS are usually on the front line of some horrific racism. Yeah. yeah. And, and both being the patient and working in the system. And so, well, I survived, obviously, but it really opened my eyes. So when the Embrace report did drop about black women being more likely to die in this day and age, I was just, I felt overwhelmed with joy to have data to the fact. Sure. Because the NHS is an institution who don't hear singular stories, they hear data. Mm. And I was like, yeah, you can't ignore those numbers. And Do you know if they're they're actively doing anything to try and... Oh, oh, you know, I I can't lie. I went to some proper shit (laughs) midwifery conference or something the other day hosted by them. And it was terrible because I know, you know, it's data and they have to be reactive. But also because I had to speak on a panel there and I understood my privilege in that moment is not being employed by the NHS. And I was like, okay, this is very cute, but... You guys are talking about things like diabetes and and hypertension. When are we going to get down to the nitty gritty? No, black female voices are ignored just because they're black. Mm. We have paperwork, you know, it's it's normally targeted to America, about how you guys actually think black women feel less pain. So you're not quick to offer Mm. medical relief. Like these are actual thoughts and findings and these are... Uh, conscious and unconscious things you take to work like Mm. and you know I say these things and the room falls airily silent because no one wants to go that deep no one wants to unpick those moments yeah how is life you you live out of London right 
yeah. still how is life there <laughs> in the village <laughs> it's actually it's it's all right it's it's so dry like don't okay. leave London until you flushed all the need for going out <laughs> on a Friday out of your system because the minute you're outside the M25 that ceases to exist it just doesn't happen but again when not again when I found out I was having a boy I couldn't do it in London I couldn't okay do and it. why I, talk, talk me through that decision you know knife crime a bit like you were saying earlier I'm obsessed with that data I'm obsessed yeah. with the news feeds I'm obsessed with trying to get into the minds of these young boys because they're not even men these young boys mm. who must think so little of their lives that they see this as 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 a as a given it's just a given it's like you know you you hear them speak and they're like yeah if man gets chef you get chef in it i'm like mm. no regard for their own life because mm. it only ends one of two ways you in a wooden box or you in a, a steel cage you know mm. they don't care and when i found out i was having a son i was like yeah i can't, I can't do that here i can't get to a point where I'm fearing if he's being groomed into a gang mm. or even if not, if he dares to cycle in the wrong postcode, someone's going to see that as a call to arms because, you know, that's where London is right now. You cross mm. the wrong street, you look at someone for two seconds too long, mm. that could be the sign that ends your life. And it's just not a risk I was prepared to take. And Brixton born and bred, London's all I knew and I could, I, I felt like I couldn't leave the country, but I thought if I can just get out of what I feel like is the hot spot, I may breathe a bit easier. Yeah. And unfortunately, I do. And sometimes I feel mad guilty about where my life is now. Really guilty. And why do you feel guilty? Because you've left everyone behind? Or... Yeah. Okay. That's All how right. I feel really guilt-ridden. My, my, my sister lives in Brixton. She lives in Tulse Hill. And, you know, a year or so ago, my niece was four, had to walk past the body bag to get to school. God. And, and when I spoke to my sister, I think what shook me up the most, and it, like, it brings me to tears now, my sister was just so, like, flatline about it. She was like, yeah, but you know how it is. Yeah. And because I'd been out of London for a bit, I was like, yeah, but it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. Like, why? And we shouldn't expect war anywhere, but this isn't a space that you would see this happen day to day so I don't know why people have just come to expect the loss of life mm. so casually and I know it's because it's lives that history and society have said are not valuable so you know uh, another body bag let me just hop on my fixed wheel and cycle to my job in Shoreditch you know life goes on but in that moment someone's mum's life has stopped too a family's life doesn't exist beyond that point and for us to just be moving like knife crime is not an epidemic in itself it's that writing that chapter I think that was that has been the hardest line of discussion for me mm. because this is not uh knife crime is not a virus also that only affects the black like we're at a point in London, especially where any child can get it and their children 
And when you see the way the media then write these things, oh, you know, 14-year-old drug dealer, that kid does not know what he's doing at 14. Don't write shit like Mm. that. Don't Mm. write... That is a 14-year-old who was, for many reasons, fallen through the cracks. Mm. Don't, you know, just now write him off as, like, some kid that was peddling coke. And more to the point, who's he selling the coke to? Does no one want to have that discussion? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's, a lot. A, it's weird how that, it, and it's just a fear because uh, on the outskirts, I've lost people to knife crime, like friends or friends or guys I went to school with. But it's weird how the touch with that is not something that has impacted me personally. Like my brother's still here. My son's still here. Yeah. But yet that is the chapter that just, Yeah. I can't seem to talk about that without crying because it's you. so mad. Like once COVID-19 is a distant memory, we're back to war with this. We are yeah. still at war with the idea of trying to make our kids see their lives are valuable. And it's, it's a hard one. Mm. How are you feeling right now in terms of the representation of motherhood? We've talked about you being kind of a lone black person in this world of kind of white mummy blogging. But do mm. you feel, obviously, you, you have this amazing make motherhood diverse um, situation going on it do you feel like it's getting more diverse I feel like it is and I right. feel that way because there is a lot of change happening from like businesses and brands I've been asked to consult on a lot of like tv ads and ads online they're like listen we want to do this ad about motherhood but we do not want to mess this up that's great we want to make sure I'm like yes because yeah. Not only did I do this just so there's fairer representation, I did it so there's a fairer spread of money, man. Mm. I'm like, mm. why is the disabled mum not getting called for this job? What, like, where are the mums from same-sex relationships? Like, everyone deserves to split this bag. You, we, we can't continue to give the wealth to those that have always had the wealth. Mm-hmm. Funnel this down. And so when those brands call me, I always get shivers because this is the stuff that I don't share online. I don't share when I'm up till 2 a.m., paying women who have been cast because I'm just like oh you know that's not the tone I want to set but in at my heart that's what I set out to do Mm. I don't just want to like see a picture of an ad and be like oh that's cool no is everyone being paid fairly does everyone know what's up for the picking here that's where I want to be like I want a woman who is stuck in a violent relationship to see this motherhood thing or sharing the way she parents as an out And I want her to be paid fairly for her time. And brands are listening to me. And once they listen, then it filters down. So, um, you know, for all that's going on in the world, I'm, I'm, Annie, I'm positive. I'm like, this work I'm doing, it's not falling on deaf ears, I don't think. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been awesome. It's been brilliant. Thank you. And congrats on on an amazing book. I mean, you're a fucking author. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. This has been amazing. Thank you. There you go. Shout out to Candice Brathwaite for a really, really compelling and insightful and interesting and sometimes really, really emotional conversation. Such an important perspective on motherhood, such an underrepresented perspective. I am so glad she exists. I am so glad that she is out there fighting the good fight. 
to make motherhood more diverse and you must you must you must go pick up her book I am not your baby mother out this week and go and follow her on Instagram Candice Brathwaite she's wonderful on there just so real doesn't mess about you know where you stand with her she's a blogger she's an influencer yes she does ads but there's no subterfuge you get the impression that everything she puts on there she means and she uses and that's what you want you just want kind of truth and honesty and I feel like she is that um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Jamar last week. We got a lovely review on Apple Podcasts from Karj88, who said, Every episode has been great, but Jamar Jonas has given me a real boost. As a teacher in a pupil referral unit and a former mentor, I can echo the sentiment of everything he said. Our young people need a voice now more than ever. So thank you so much to you, Cars, and also to Kieran, um, Jamar's mentor, who got in touch with me on email to say that when he listened to the episode, he cried because he couldn't get over how far Jamar had come. Um, so yeah, it was a very rewarding episode, and uh, I hope that you got something out of it and, and, and got a chance to hear a voice that maybe you wouldn't normally hear. All right, next week, it's a bit of a film club special. The heart-wrenching story of filmmaker Wad Al-Khatib is going to be presented to you by Wad herself and we're going to be exploring the biggest changes she went through in her life and there's some real deep changes in terms of place, in terms of danger to her life, in terms of health, in terms of her becoming a mother, right in the middle of a war zone. Go check out her film. It's called For Sama, Sama being her daughter. It's for free right now on all four. It's been nominated for every award from Oscars to Golden Globes. And it's an essential view for anyone who has ever been curious about the reality of what it's like to live in war. You see the news reports, but what it's like from a female perspective in the middle of war, it is fascinating. So go watch it. We'll talk about it next week. This episode was produced by Abby Hollick at Rethink Audio. Have a gorgeous week, folks, and I'll speak to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.